Hello and welcome to the Life Church Audio Podcast. We hope that you find these messages encouraging, life-giving, and ultimately get you closer to Jesus. Enjoy the message. Well, hello, friends. This is Jason. If we've never met before, let me introduce myself. I'm a pastor of a church called The Way here in Vancouver. I don't know if you can see Vancouver over my shoulder there, and it is a real honor to be with you this morning. We started this church about a year ago, and one of the most amazing things is being able to build friendships with other pastors all over the Lower Mainland. And this summer, I'll tell a little bit more about this in a bit, we got to go with a number of other pastors on a bit of a pastor's holiday at a summer camp. And uh, that's when I got to know your pastors, Andreas and Ermarie, and it's such an honor to be invited to speak to you this morning. And I want to speak out of a text in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to the first half of verse 5. So if you've got a Bible, you can flip there. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And as I was saying, we were away at a pastor's holiday at a summer camp. And so I'm having all these flashbacks to summer camp. I don't know if you grew up going to summer camp, but a big part of my teenage life was spending summers at camps. And what I remember almost the most clear about camps was the night games. And again, if you didn't go to camp, it's fine. Let me explain. The night game is sometime after dinner when it begins to get dark, there's some epic game that you play on the camp property. And all of the games ultimately exist around the same premise. You and your team need to get to some place or retrieve something. And there's like overzealous youth leaders that are trying to like hunt you down with flashlights or, you know, sometimes they like would feel like I remember one time they'd fill like socks with like flour and they'd hit you with the flour. I don't even know if that's allowed anymore, but that was the kind of thing that we experienced when we were teenagers. And so night games are epic. And I was talking with some friends about different night games we played at camp. And my friend Landry told me this story that they played this game called Keeper of the Flame. Keeper of the Flame. And the concept was this. I don't know how many teams there were. Let's say there was two, there could have been three or four, but each team had like a flame, like like some sort of like fire on like a torch or like a little campfire or something like that. And they had to keep it from going out. And other teams had like squirt guns and buckets of water and different things that they could use to try to put out the fire. And I don't know, like, as I think about this, it doesn't sound very safe. And I imagine that they, maybe they had some rules about how close you could go, but I don't know the details. But all I know is that there was like two jobs. People who are on offense, they're trying to put out the fire. But if you were on defense, your job was to keep the flame alive, keep the flame alive. And I have this like picture in my mind of like a youth leader who's taking it way too seriously, like holding like the face of like a 12 year old boy saying, listen, buddy, you've got one job, keep this flame alive. Like I'm just picturing this like, you know, 12 year old, like diving in front of a water bottle, making sure, or like a water balloon, making sure it doesn't hit the flame and put it out. And this line, like you've got one job, keep this flame alive. You've got one job keep this flame alive. It's got me thinking about the flame of our faith. And what I mean by that is the passion in our heart for God. Whether it's in a relationship with God or any relationship, there's a a place of passion in our heart for that relationship. And like any relationship, that passion can go out or drift or fade. And I wanna ask the question, What do we do as followers of Jesus? And I realize not everyone here is a follower of Jesus. I hope as you listen in, you'll be able to get a window into what it is like to follow Jesus and get to know him deeper, the difference he's made in my life and the lives of people and his word. What is it 
What are we to do as followers of Jesus to tend the flame of our passion for Jesus? What's our responsibility? What can we do? What things put it out? Or what things ignite it? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about keeping the flame of our faith alive. And the text that we're looking at speaks to this theme. And perhaps one of the reasons why I want to speak about this this morning is because I have noticed in my life, and as a pastor of the life of many people in my congregation, that over the pandemic, and it's not true of everyone, I realize that, but over the pandemic, um, there has been like a cooling off or a loss of passion or perspective when it comes to things of God. And it happens so easily. Some people would call it drifting, like drifting away from God or... You might use other language, like, I've lost my passion, or it's been deprioritized. And it can happen so naturally. And I know that for some people, their story is actually in the pandemic. I found my walk with God grew like crazy, like all this alone time, or the fear pushed me in deeper. But for others, being removed from Christian community, or just the sense of the news cycles and all that was going on, it actually had this effect on their walk with God. And whether it happened to you during the pandemic or it's happened in the past or in the future, this idea of drifting can happen so naturally. So I want to speak to this theme. I want to speak to being the keeper of the flame of our heart. Let me read the text to you. Um, and, And the context of this text is Revelation is written by a pastor to churches. In chapter 1, verse 4, it says John. John's the apostle of Jesus, but also a pastor in the early church. Now, he's been in prison. He's writing this letter from the island of Patmos. He's writing this revelation he's received from Jesus as a letter of encouragement to disciples living in a very difficult time in history. This letter is written when the church is facing great persecution, where it feels like they're scattered and apart. And John is writing first and foremost as a pastor to encourage the people of God with the words of Jesus and what he's seen in this vision to build them up and teach them how do you be a disciple in the midst of a culture that is pushing against the things of God. I believe the book of Revelation is a discipleship manual for you and for me today. And it was a discipleship manual for the first church. And he wrote it to seven churches in the empire. And the truth is there was more than seven different churches. And so you ask the question, why seven? Because this is what it says, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And so he writes this to the seven churches and he's writing to specific churches. The the letter we're going to read is his note, like this little note that he writes, the words of Jesus to the church in Ephesus. That's what we're focusing on in chapter two. But he also writes to the church in Smyrna and Thyatira. And so he says seven churches because in the book of Revelation, the number seven always means complete, all of it, totality. And so when he's writing to seven churches, he's writing letters, yes, to these specific churches, but in another way, he's writing these letters to all of the churches, that this letter would be circulated past those seven churches, but to all of the churches at the time, and then to all of the churches throughout history. And so this letter that was written to Ephesus, the words of Jesus to the young church in Ephesus in a very important time of history, is a letter for us today. And what you find with all of the seven letters is that each of them speak to realities that each church faces in each part of history in every country around the world. And so it's a letter for us today, a special note, the words of Jesus recorded by the pastor John for us today. And listen to what he says. He says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. 
I'll explain that imagery in just a moment. It doesn't have to feel intimidating. We'll explain that imagery in just a moment. But he's saying, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, verse four, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. It's really easy to follow. There's an introduction. Who's speaking? There's some commendations. There are things that Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. Here's what I see you doing, and I'm commending you for it. And then there is a critique, a correction. Here's one thing I hold against you. And then there's an instruction for what to do next. And I believe for us today, we want to look at who's writing this. What does he commend in the church in Ephesus? What does he correct? And what might we do about it? First, let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus and the church in Ephesus. So Ephesus is a great city. It's a huge city. 225,000 people. It is the fourth largest church in the Roman, or city in the Roman Empire. It's a massive city. And it's like a trade hub and an urban center. It's, 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 a, it's a trade port. And so what you have is people from all these different cultures from around the world and great businesses happening there. But it's also a place of wealth and opportunity and the arts. And it's also a place of worship. Ephesus was the home of the largest temple, the temple to Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Artemis was a god of fertility, and sexual desire. And she was the embodiment of things like lust, like the image of Artemis was a woman covered in breasts. And this was the main God worshiped in the city of Ephesus. It was a place of worship. And when I think about the city of Vancouver, while we might not think about it in the same terms of worship and temple, I know that the gods are the same here. Gods of sex or money or power or pleasure. So there is great, great, um, it was a great city, and there was a great church that grew in the city of Ephesus. In the middle of a very dark place, God built the church. And that's a word of encouragement for you and for me. In the middle of a dark place, God built a dynamic church. And you have to imagine that before Paul's missionary journey to Ephesus, there was no Christians in Ephesus. I mean, this is a new movement. We have a window into the very first days of the Christian movement spreading around the world. And so Paul visits Ephesus, he leaves, and a church begins to grow, and then he returns for two and a half years. But then eventually a riot breaks out in the city. There's this whole riot against the Christian movement that caused Paul to eventually leave Ephesus. Paul the apostle, the church planner, is there for years building the church, and it causes such a disturbance, you can read about this in the book of Acts, that he's pushed out. Here's how the disturbance happened. It's so fascinating. As people began to become Christians, they were turning from their worship and even their worship of Artemis. And the whole of the city had industry and layers of industry that were dedicated to the worship of Artemis. And so all of a sudden people begin to get saved and they stop buying these idols and these trinkets. And this all of a sudden starts to affect commerce. And even metal workers are going out of business because people are not buying these idols that were set apart to the worship of Artemis. And so they were furious. And as a side note, this is what happens when things that are counter to the way of God, when people become Christians, 
It changes the way they live their entire life. And it confronts the powers and structures and even dark powers of the cities in which people are becoming Christians. And so it's, you can expect this kind of pushback. You can expect this kind of thing to happen. And this is the city of Ephesus. In the midst of all of this, this church begins to grow. And the church is growing and it becomes a church that's influencing other churches around the Roman Empire. It was a church influencing other churches. It used to be in Jerusalem, but at this time that John is writing, Ephesus is the most influential church in the movement. And he's speaking to them. And what does he say? He commends them and he corrects them. He commends them and he corrects them. Before we look at what he commends them for and what he corrects them for, let me speak really specifically to verse 1. Go with me back to chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. In chapter 1, we hear about the seven golden lampstands as well. And the seven golden lampstands, the number seven you hear again, represents the seven churches. So each of these lampstands represents each of the church. And so the picture we have in chapter 1 is that Jesus is standing in the middle of the lampstands. And then in chapter 2, he's walking amongst them. Picture this for a moment. What John sees Jesus doing is walking amongst his church. And for the first Christians who are in the middle of persecution and pushback, in the middle of riots and attack, to get a message that says Jesus is not far away. He's walking amongst you. He's close and he's interested. This reminds us that Jesus is interested in the life of his church. He's keenly aware of his church and he is building his church. So this is the one who walks among the seven golden lamps and who walks among his churches. But the first line says this, he holds the seven stars in his right hand. And the seven stars, there's two ways we can look at that. On one hand, the seven stars could represent the seven churches. So we have all of a sudden this picture of Jesus holding the seven churches in his hands. So then you might say, here's the words of the one who holds the churches in the palm of his hand and walks amongst his churches. That's a picture of being intimately acquainted. But holding the seven stars could also speak to the idea of the whole universe. At this time, you'd often see like kings or rulers with images of the galaxy behind them. So this idea of the seven stars could represent the idea of the one who's speaking holds the whole universe in the palm of his hands. And so the one speaking holds the universe in the palm of his hands and is deeply interested in the life of the church. And this is an invitation for you and for me to turn our attention to the words of Jesus. There are so many people speaking. There are so many different messages that we hear in our day-to-day -day life. There are so many voices. Which voice do we listen to? I mean, this is one of the fundamental decisions that every human being has to make. This is the fundamental question of discipleship. Whose voice will you listen to? And what is happening here is in listen to the voice of the one who holds the universe and who is intimately acquainted with the life of the church. As a pastor, I want to hear the voice, not the voice of this world that pushes back, not the voice of culture, not even the voice of the broader movements that speak to what's the right way to do it. I want to hear primarily the voice of the one who holds the universe in hand and walks amongst the churches that is intimately acquainted with the church. I want to hear the voice of Jesus. And this is Jesus speaking. We're about to hear Jesus speak to the church and affirm what he sees. I see this and I affirm it. And then correct. Bring correction to it. This is what we hear. And for you and I today to listen to the voice of the one who holds the universe in the palm of his hand and walks amongst his church. Here's what he first of all affirms. 
And you can read it with me. Verses 2 and 3 says this. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and you've endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Think about it in the context of the story of the church in Ephesus, of the pushback and yet the growth. And the living God speaks to his church. And he says, I see your hard work. I see your perseverance. Keep on going. This is the voice of an affirming father. This is King Jesus speaking to his people, saying, I see your perseverance. I see your hard work. Keep on going. And this is a picture of a church that's not a consumer church. It's a vibrant church. It's a church on mission. And it's an invitation for the kind of church that you and I are invited to be part of. That perseveres, a faith that perseveres against resistance, that keeps on going. And there's different ways that you can, you know, organize the different things that he commends. But there's, there's essentially three things that Jesus says that he affirms in the life of the church in Ephesus. First, that they're passionate in service. It speaks to a church that is serving others. The early church was passionate about caring for the widow and the poor. Whenever they saw needs, they took it upon themselves to care for. They were a church of great love and action. They saw the life of Jesus and they imitated it with their whole life, even at great cost to themselves. They weren't forced or coerced to, but it was a desire of their heart to do great service and great sacrifice. I see your service. I see that you're passionate in service and I commend that in you. May we be a people of God who are passionate in service. I think about the words in the New Testament that says, do not give up doing good. For at just the right time, you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. There are people passionate in service. There are also people holding strong to God's word. Holding strong to God's word. It speaks about them having even people coming into their midst who claim to be followers of Jesus and leaders who are speaking heresy. There are people coming in and they're trying to undermine the word of God. And Jesus says, I see that and I affirm that you're doing awesome. You're holding true to my word. We live in a moment in history where although it doesn't feel like there's physical pushback or like physical persecution like they felt for standing true to the word of God, there's this like soft power beneath the surface. This undercurrent that we feel, but you can't necessarily see, but you feel this pressure to bend away from the word of God, to deprioritize certain parts of scripture, to de-elevate it and to elevate above it the opinion of culture, the opinion of man. And he says, I see that you hold true to the word of God. You've made it your foundation and you're not giving in to lies. And may that be true of us. May it be true of you and me that the living God would say, I see your hard work and I see the way that you're holding true to the word of God. I think in a fresh way, we need to take the charge to hold true to God's word, even when there's pressure against it. So they're passionate in service. They're people holding strong to God's word, and they endured great hardship. Like for them, it cost them their reputation, their jobs. I mean, at the time, so much of commerce was interconnected with the life of the community, and in this case, the worship of Artemis. And so many other things going on, worship of the Roman Empire and the emperor worship was really popular in Ephesus. And so when you become a Christian and you no longer worship the emperor or worship Artemis, that has massive effects on your business. 
people don't want to associate with you, on your family, on your friendships, your relationships. So this was at great cost to the church, even physical persecution. And Jesus sees that I see the great cost, I see the hardships you're enduring, and you didn't give up. I see that. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate it, wicked people that have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and you've endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. I see it. I honor that in you. Verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. So first he affirms and then he corrects. And what does he correct them for? What is it that he can correct in this church that seems to be doing all of this stuff well? He says, you've lost your first love. You've forsaken the love you had at first. This is the idea of your first love being Jesus. There's two ways we can look at it. One is the love that you had at first. Maybe you remember the early days of planting a church, or you remember the early days of your faith in Jesus, or you remember moments in your walk with Jesus where he was the number one affection of your heart. Like I remember when I first got saved and I just was so drawn to his word and to speak for him and I wanted to follow him with my whole life. I couldn't help it. Like I was overwhelmed with affection for God. And Jesus is saying, you forgot that first love. You forgot it. There's been a drifting. There's been a deprioritizing. But there's also this other idea of first love. And Augustine spoke about disordered loves. And the idea is this, that our hearts are wired to love. And we're meant, our hearts are designed to love God first and then everything else. So you can imagine, you know, God first and then your love for your spouse, your children, then maybe your vocation, your passion, or your calling, and then... And the idea is that we're so wired to love that our relationships with the things that we love can become disordered when God's not our first love. So you see this happen all the time. You can have somebody who, uh, something good, like loving your children. But then if God's not your first love and your children are your first love and God's deprioritized, you can put an unhealthy expectation on your children, unhealthy pressure on your children. You can idolize them in a unique way. You can need something from them that they cannot give you. Only God can satisfy the longings of your heart. Only God can take that first seed of affection in your heart. And if he's not in that place and something else is, it becomes disorder. You see that again when people prioritize wealth or vocation over their families. All of a sudden you see people, like it's not wrong to love your work or to love the way God's wired you and designed you. But when you love those things and your career and your success more than your children or your wife or God, you end up sacrificing the most important relationships of your life at the altar of work or the altar of ministry. We see that with ministers all the time. You see people who go into ministry because they love Jesus. They love, like, man, God, I want to do anything for you. And then the things of the ministry become more important than their own walk with God and their loves get disordered. And Jesus is saying, I see all this amazing stuff that you do, but that's not the main thing. The main thing is me. I'm the main thing. I'm the number one. Make me your first love. Return to your first love fire for me. What happened? Where was the drift? And I think all of us are invited to take stock in our lives and to return to that first love fire, to say, Jesus, would you ignite my heart afresh? I think about when I first started following Jesus. 
like I was so intimidated by the scriptures, but I couldn't get out of them. I found myself reading the Bible over and over again, praying, waking up early to spend time with the Lord. I remember as a teenager when I fell in love with Jesus, just being drawn to moments of prayer and started a prayer group in my high school and praying for my friends that don't know Jesus and sharing my faith. And it wasn't guilt. No one was forcing me. Like it just was this overflowing love. I remember even issues of holiness and purity, like reading the Bible and being like, man, if that's what God is instructing me to do, man, of course I want to do it. And like freely, a desire in my heart to obey the things of God, to give generously, to give my money, my resources. I remember getting this job at A&W and I just was head over heels for Jesus and loved the church. And I made $6.25 an hour. And I remember my first paycheck with joy, giving my whole paycheck to the church. Like it didn't even sting at all. I was like, of course, like this is a joyful sacrifice, joyful obedience, joyfully going after him. You know, 15 years later or however long it's been, there's been moments in my walk with God where I've lost the joy, where I've lost the passion. There's been a drifting where the fire of my passion for Jesus has gone out. Not my salvation. That's not what I'm saying. Just that passion for the things of God. And so, what do we do? Listen to the language. Verse 5. It says, consider how far you've fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. Consider how far you've fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. I love this. This is not a bunch of guilt to make you feel bad. This is not just a bunch of emotions to stir a moment. This is a practical response to a reality that happens in the hearts of many believers. Remember how this letter is to the seven churches, the letter to all the churches? This was happening in Ephesus, but it happens in all the churches. It happens in all of our lives. We drift. And we're not meant just to feel bad about it. We're meant to do something about it. And there's practical instructions. Three steps. Consider, repent, and do what you did at first. Consider. Like, take stock. To consider is just to acknowledge where you're at right now. You don't have to wait till there's a response or anything. Right now, just begin to consider, where am I at with my walk with God? It's like taking your pulse or checking your vitals. Like, take your spiritual pulse. How are things going with you and God? Has the passion drifted? Have you maybe deprioritized it? Is he important but not the main thing? And it's just a chance to consider. It says, consider how far you've fallen. And this is something we do today, and I want to invite you to do today to consider. But it's something we can do every day. Just to reflect, did I make God a priority in my life today? Were my eyes wandering to the things of this world? Or were my eyes set on the things of God? And it's probably a daily activity just to acknowledge, okay, God, I reset my attention on you. So first consider, acknowledge, see how far you've fallen. Just say, okay, I'm not where I was at first. And then repent. The next instruction is repent. And repent means a change of thinking that leads to a change in action. It's, it's the idea of like a U-turn. You're going in one direction, it's turning the other way. And it's more than just feeling bad. Like I said, it's actually a change in the decisions you make. It's the kind of repentance always includes action. It's a resolve in your mind that leads to action in your life. And it often includes um, confession. Saying, Lord, would you forgive me for letting my eyes wander to things of this world? God, I acknowledge that my heart has grown cool towards your will for my life and for you as, a, as my God. Just to repent, God, would you forgive me? 
God, I want to acknowledge that I want you to be the first love in my life. I want you to be number one. I deprioritize these other things and I elevate you in my life. So it says, consider, repent, and then do what you did at first. Do what you did at first. And I think this captures the idea of going back to the things that you did when you are first saved. Going back to the basics. There's no uh, new trick or curriculum that you need to buy or download, but just to go back to the basics. What did you do at first? Think about when you were first dating. I think about when I first started dating Rach. Like, you couldn't keep me away from her. Uh, I lived like 45 minutes from her house and I was working two jobs while I was in my undergraduate. But man, if I could get 20 minutes with Rach, I would drive from where I was living at the time into Langley and see Rach and then drive back, even if it's just for 20 minutes. I used to write her all these love letters. She told me that she loved handwritten notes and I have the worst handwriting. Like, there's no way anyone can read this. But I'd write her these handwritten notes and you couldn't stop me because I had all these words in my heart. I wanted to pour out love to her. I'd plan these elaborate dates. I'd think about all these creative ways. And then maybe I'm the only husband, but then we got married and some of those handwritten notes aren't happening as often. And the thoughtfulness and the pursuit and the date nights. And so for me and my walk with Rachel, to return to the things I did at first, that comes right to mind. To pour out words of affirmation on her. To prioritize her with creativity. To organize my life, to spend time, to find those minutes and cherish, to give her my full attention, to write her notes, to buy her flowers. And so when I think about my walk with God, to return to the things I did at first would be even without the emotion to return to that desire to read and obey the word, to sneak up, wake up early in the morning or late at night to be alone with Jesus, to organize my life, to be around him, to share about him with others, to obey and to sacrifice. We live in a moment where we think our emotions should lead our actions, but it needs to be the other way around. It's not how it works. We shouldn't just give or sacrifice when we feel like it, but we should give and sacrifice so we align our life in those kind of ways. Do what you did at first. Go back to the basics. Do what you did at first. Let me just read the text to you one more time. I think now that we've kind of unpacked it, you'll hear it speak in a fresh way. And then I just want to ask two questions, and then we'll wrap up. And by the way, I'm filming in the middle of a heat wave, and so if I look warm, it's because I'm very warm. And... Uh, I'm sure you're watching this in like an air-conditioned space right now going, what's that guy's problem? Just, we had to turn off the AC so you could hear my voice or else you would hear humming in the background. So here I am. Here's the words. Listen to them in a fresh way. These are the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and you've endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. Before I pray, I just want to ask you two questions by way of reflection. The first question is, what are the things that could be active in your life right now that quench the passion for Jesus? What are the things that kill the flame? If you want to picture that game again, Keeper of the Flame, what are the things 
in your life that could put out the flame of your passion for Jesus. I wrote down a few here. Time apart. Ignoring his voice. Unconfessed sin. Isolation from Christian community. Escapism in all kinds of different forms, whether it's drunkenness or pornography or just digital addiction or overconsumption of food, whatever it might be. Selfishness. What kills the flame? Did any of those stand out to you? What would it look like for us to go, man, that is putting out the flame of my passion for Jesus. How do I remove that from my life and not turn to it in that way? Second question, what ignites your passion for Jesus? What can you do this week to turn up the temperature in your love for God? To tend to that flame, to be a keeper of the flame, to stir it up. Like, I remember like waking up early when I would be go camping and uh, I always would love to see if there was any embers left in the fire. And so I'd move away all the soot and if I could find one ember, then I would like blow on it and then feed it with like paper and then wood and blow on it and fan it. What are the things that fan to flame your passion for Jesus? I wrote down a few. Time in his word. Silence and solitude. Prayer. Obedience. Sacrifice. Giving. Serving. Fasting. Receiving prayer. Time under the word, hearing testimonies of Jesus transforming lives. I could go on. What are the things that stir up your faith? Consider, repent, and do what you did at first. What would it look like for us to go, I've got one job, it's to keep my faith number one in my life. I'm not going to be casual about it. I'm going to prioritize it. What is a better investment in our life than keeping the main thing the main thing? keeping Jesus central in our life and in the heart of our church. As we enter this new season, because it does feel like we're at the precipice of a new season, take this moment, take this opportunity to think about what it looks like to prioritize our faith in Jesus Christ as the anchor and center point of our lives. Bless you in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for joining us on the Life Church audio podcast. If this message spoke to you, go ahead and share it with your friends and family. And let's get the Word of God into the lives of more people out there. For more information about us, go to thisislifechurch.com. And remember that we can make a difference by loving people.